Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the pastoral letters. Um, today we are looking at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, uh, and also parallel passage, which is Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, and these two passages, Paul gives Timothy and then Titus uh, careful instructions on helping the churches that they are pastoring to choose those who will serve as their elders, as their pastors. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul tells us why he wrote the letter to Timothy, his first letter. He said he was writing so that believers would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which he says is the church of the living God. So to this point in the letter, Paul has spoken of several things as far as that are important in conducting ourselves in the church of a living God. The need to uphold sound doctrine in the church by staying true to the biblical gospel. He has spoken of the importance of prayer. He has spoken of the roles of men and women in the church as we all pursue godliness. And now in chapter 3, Paul speaks of the importance of appointing biblically qualified elders who will give leadership in these things. So our first main point on your outline this morning is this, to rightly conduct themselves as the household of God, the local church must choose qualified men as their elders slash overseers slash pastors. I use those three titles uh, because they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Um, in Acts, uh, just to give you an example of that, in Acts chapter 20, we see that Paul called together the elders of the church at Ephesus in chapter 20, verse 17. He specifically addresses them as elders. And then in verse 28, as part of the same message, he says this, Be on God for yourselves and for all the flock among whom which the, oh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So just even in this one time where, where Paul was speaking, he uses all three of those terms to describe those who were the, the elders, the pastors of the church. And each of those words give a little bit different aspect to what the role of the elder is. First, using the word elder, it's referred to men who either by reason of their age or their status, they're referred to as elders for that purpose. And that term really says that there should be, there needs to be a level of Christian maturity required to serve in the role. The word overseer uh, is also translated as bishop. It's the same word. And it speaks of one who is to watch over the spiritual lives of those under his charge. It involves giving guidance, giving direction. The third word is shepherd or pastor. And the shepherd leads and watches over the sheep. He instructs and teaches the sheep, and he guards them against wolves who would, let, who would seek to lead them astray and destroy their faith. Conrad Mbewe, who is a pastor in South Africa, he says, Each of these three titles reflects the truth that these men are the stewards. They're the stewards of Christ's leadership in the church. Christ is the head of the church. Scriptures make that very clear. He is the shepherd of the sheep. The elders in local churches are actually shepherds who work under Christ as the chief shepherd. And all through the New Testament, we see that there is a plurality of elder leadership in the churches. 
We've had a number of men who have served as elders at Two Rivers over the years, over our 30 years of existence. Uh, currently, the elders are Steve English, Steve Matting, uh, <laughs> Jeremiah Mattingly, and myself. And as Mbewe says, these men are stewards of Christ's leadership in the church. That's a weighty thing. And the way that Paul introduces the subject in 1 Timothy 3, 1, gives us an understanding of the weightiness of it. He starts off by saying this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. He begins by saying this is a trustworthy statement. Uh, this is the second time that he's used that phrase in this particular letter. Um, the First uh, Timothy 1.15 was the first time that he used it. There he says, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So we've seen that phrase used, used once. Altogether, there's five different times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that that phrase is used to introduce a different statement of faith, of the faith. And I believe what this is doing, this, this is, is, a, is, a, is an identification, really, of something that could be described as a series of statements that the early church had, uh, similar to what churches for centuries have used for as far as statements of faith, confessions of faith. They had a list themselves that they used. And so they were be called trustworthy statements or, or faithful sayings, depends on how your version interprets that. Well, you can understand why a statement like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, you can understand why that would be an important part of a statement of faith. I mean, that's just central uh, to the gospel message. And the other examples of these trustworthy statements, which we're not going to look at right now, they also give basic summaries of different, some different aspect of the Christian faith important things for a Christian to be aware of and to remember. But what about this one? This one seems a little out of place almost in comparison to the others. But then again, not really. Because as we just pointed out, the elders of the church are stewards of Christ shepherding leadership in the church. They are shepherds of the gathered church of the living God overseers of the very household of God. That's a significant thing. So with these things in mind, the next point in your outline says this, the understanding of the office of elder and the selection of qualified men to this office is so important to the faith and life of the church that it's included as a part of their creed, as a part of their creed. Now there's another aspect to this that I think is uh, helpful, especially today for us to consider on why this particular statement of, of uh, having a desire for the office of, of elder, why that would be included as a key statement for the church. We know from the book of Acts that there was a lot of opposition to Christians. Um, much of the time that opposition came from the Jews uh, who rejected the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah and there was significant opposition in many cities, as we go through and read all, all of Paul's ministries and how that happened over and over and over again. 
But there was also opposition from the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, those who were idol worshipers. And one of our best examples of that would actually took place in Ephesus, which is the very city where Timothy is pastoring. And there was a riot that took place because Paul was preaching against the idol worship of Artemis. Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. He was preaching against that idolatry that was so prevalent. I mean, it was a very kind of kind of a uh, uprising that really s- seemed to take in the whole city. It was a big deal. We took some time this morning to remember the persecuted church and our service. Well, for a person to step forward as pastor in a place where the Christian faith is being persecuted is going to take a courageous faith because most of the time, the first people that the persecutors, those who are so adamant against the Christian faith, most of the time, the first person they're going to go after is the leadership. They're going to go after the pastors. So I think that's another reason, and this was happening in the first century church, just like it happens in our our world as well. So I think that's another reason between putting this statement as a trustworthy statement, as a key part of other things that they held together as a church just trying to encourage those who had the desire to be a pastor, that it was pleasing to God. Okay, so let's look at what the trustworthy statement actually says. Verse 1 again says, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So we see from this verse our next point, and that is the desire God gives a man for the office of elder, overseer, pastor is a holy aspiration because it's a God-honoring work. The word for aspire that's used here uh, literally means to, to stretch oneself or to reach out the hand. It's a desire or a longing for something. Now, what it's not, this is not an expression of a person's ambition. Uh, in other words, this is not the same as saying, I want to be a professional athlete when I grow up. Or I want to be a CEO you know, of an important company or whatever that means. Or... I want to grow up to be the president of the United States. I mean, it's not like an aspiration. It's not like it's not talking about a desire to be successful, a drive to be successful. That's not what he's talking about. This is really a holy ambition. It's a desire that God puts into the man's heart, and it's the really closest thing is what we have really in the Bible of, of an actual calling to ministry, and it's, it's, it's stated in this way. But Paul also makes it clear that it's not just, it's not enough just to have a holy aspiration, just to have a desire. There needs to be a level of Christian maturity, and that is an important affirmation of the desire. And the local church, as well, needs to be able to affirm that maturity and their interaction with the one who has the aspiration to be an overseer. As most of you know, uh, I am going to be retiring in 2024. And so the elders, along with our pastor's committee, are in the process really of talking to uh, several different men about the possibility of the fact that we're going to have an opening for pastor, you know, in, in next year. We don't have anything to announce as far as that, just to know that it's going on, that conversations are being had. But what I, I mentioned that to say this, to keep in mind that what we're talking about today these are the qualities that we're looking for. 
This is what Paul says to look for. So that's what we need to be aware of. So our second main point is this. The local church is to choose men as their elders, overseers, pastors, who are men of good Christian character. So let me read what Paul said about this in verses 2 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3. He says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, if you turn over a few pages to your right, to the first chapter of Titus, Paul gave Titus the responsibility of finding men who would be qualified to serve as elders in the church at Crete as well. His list is very similar. Uh, some of the things are said in a little bit different way, but it's, you'll notice a lot of similar, similarity. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay, before we start looking at these qualifications, um, there's a quote on your outline I want to point out to you by Alexander Strzok, who wrote a book on elders, eldership. He says, The basis for appointment is moral character, not education, gift, age, status, need, or talent. He's not saying these things are unimportant that don't come into play at all because they do. For example, education can be very helpful indeed, but it doesn't guarantee that a person is qualified to lead just because they have the education. We also have to be careful of being wowed by somebody's speaking ability. That's helpful. But, it, but just being gifted or talented in that area doesn't automatically guarantee that the man should be a pastor. That's the idea that he's saying. The primary thing that Paul is emphasizing here in both 1 Timothy and Titus is good Christian character. That's the main thing he's emphasizing. In fact, we see that in the first term that's used to describe an overseer, this is both in 1 Timothy and in Titus, it says he must be a man who's above reproach. This seems really to be a general description of everything else that comes after it. So everything else is describing what he means by a man of, of who's above reproach. The phrase, of course, doesn't mean that the person is perfect. That, of course, is not possible. But it does mean he has a good moral and spiritual reputation. He lives in a way that does not give people calls to think badly of the church or to think badly of the Christian faith. And then when he does fail, 
He does what's necessary to make things right. Well, let's look at some of the details of what Paul lays out as far as someone, a man being above reproach. First is this. If married, he must be a one-woman man and have a well-ordered household. First uh, Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.6 both say the same thing here. Now, first, I don't believe this means that to be an elder, a person has to be married. I don't think that's what he's saying, but I think it's the idea, if he is married, this is the kind of husband he should be. The husband is to be focused on the relationship with his wife. He's not flirtatious. He's not promiscuous or involved in a questionable relationship with another woman. Um, Alexander Strzok in his book says, on eldership, he says, this is meant to prohibit all sexual and marital deviation from faithful monogamous marriages. So if the elder is married, this is the kind of husband he's supposed to be. Um, in verses 4 and 5, Paul says this. By the way, um, I mentioned there the, the idea of, uh, of the one-woman man. That's my version actually says here, husband of one wife, and I think Titus says the same thing. It can also be translated as one woman man, and that seems to be a little more consistent with what the meaning of it is. So I think I forgot to point that out. But <coughs> So verses 4 and 5, Paul then says this about how he manages his household. He says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So if he has children, again, this doesn't mean automatically that he has to have children. But if he has children, he sees to it that his children are properly disciplined. This is not to be done in a harsh or mean-spirited way. And dead, it says he keeps his children under control with dignity. This would include raising them in the faith, making sure they understand the scriptures, making sure they understand the truths of the gospel. I don't believe this means that every child, all of his children, have made a profession of faith in Christ. Let me look at how that, look at how that was stated over in Titus. Titus says it a little bit different way. He says, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. The phrase having children who believe can also be translated as having faithful children. And when you put that compared with what he says in, in Timothy, that seems to be more in line with what he's trying to get at. So this has more to do with their obedience to their parents. The children are not allowed to live in rebellious ways without addressing the problem. Proper discipline means that there are suitable consequences for disobedience. And then Paul makes this important application in verse 7. He says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. To be a steward, we've mentioned that word already, but to be a steward is to be a manager, is to be like an administrator, a trustee of somebody else's property. So one application here is that if a man is not a good steward of his own household, how will he be a good steward of the household of God? And Paul says the same thing over in 1 Timothy 3. This is exactly the point 
that we were making earlier that God has given the elders the responsibility of being the stewards of Christ's shepherding leadership of his church. And the family is really spoken of here as a proving ground about the qualification to be able to do that. Next, we see that the elder must be a man who has self-control. His appetites do not rule over him. The word used in 1 Timothy 3.2 is temperate. Literally, it means wineless or sobriety in the use of wine. In verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3, it specifically says not addicted to wine. We see the same thing in Titus 1. So he must not be addicted, not just to wine, but to anything harmful or debilitating or worldly. Well, under this category, I would also put Paul's exhortation about money, to be free from the love of money. Titus, he says, don't be fond of sordid gain. So he's not materialistic. He handles his personal finances responsibly. And because he has self-control, he'll be very slow to go into debt. It's very possible that this man is going to have maybe some significant involvement with the church finances. So that means he has to be someone who's trustworthy. He has to be somebody who's honest. And this self-control also speaks of being sober-minded, one who's able to think carefully about the things that are going on around him. He's one who's able to keep his head when presented with things that are difficult and maybe very emotional type situations, one who's able to see the bigger picture. Well, that leads us directly to the next characteristic. Many of these kind of have an overlapping aspect to them. It says he must be a man who is balanced and sensible. The word used in uh, chapter 3, verse 2 is prudent. So when a person is prudent or a person is sober-minded, they're able to have good judgment. They're going to keep from getting sidetracked by emotional and superficial arguments. Instead, they're going to be sensible. They see things as they really are. They have a good understanding, somewhat good understanding at least, of themselves, their own strengths, their own weaknesses. And this helps them, hopefully, to have a better understanding of other people as well. The word respectable in verse 2 would also fit here. This word ties in with orderliness has to do with self-discipline, especially as it relates to other people. So it's the idea of comporting yourself in such a way as not to step on other people's toes unnecessarily. There are times when hard things need to be said. We'll get to that later. But most situations call for what he's describing here as just being respectable. So think before you say something that could be offensive and it doesn't even need to be said. That's the kind of idea that's there. The next example of someone being above reproach is this. He must not be quick-tempered or quarrelsome, but instead acts as a peacemaker, as a peacemaker. Verse 3 specifically says he should not be pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. In Titus 1, he adds not self-willed or quick-tempered. So this is a man who has his temper under control. He's not given to quarreling or fighting about things. He doesn't wear his feelings on his sleeves. He doesn't carry resentments. He's not hypercritical. All these things speak of the the problem of being pugnacious. Instead, he's inclined to be tender, to be gentle, to be understanding. He has a willingness to yield, 
patiently making allowances for weaknesses or even ignorance that others may have. He can resort to forthrightness if that's needed, but even then, it's to be done in love. He really has more of a, more of a mindset of, being, of peacemaking over against being divisive. His words are not harsh or divisive, but helpful and encouraging. And once again, when tough issues need to be addressed, he's able to do that in a gracious way. Next, the one who would be an elder must be a mature believer who has a true love for the Lord. 1 Timothy 3.6 says he should not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In Titus, we read that he must be one who is just, one who is devout. So Paul warns specifically about not being a recent convert. Everybody, we are all vulnerable to the sin of pride. We all are. But it seems to be a greater issue for someone who has recently become a Christian. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before stumbling. So pride sets us up for accusations of condemnation from the devil. Pride sets us up for making some very foolish decisions and foolish comments. It sets us up for looking down on people who we just pursue not to be as informed as we are. Just dangerous temptations here. So there needs to be a level of maturity in the faith before one is considered to be an elder. Christian maturity also ties into what Titus, what we see in Titus, being just, being devout. The idea of just is someone who is upright, who is a, someone who is a righteous man. Just and righteous are basically the same word. He conducts himself, in other words, in accordance with the principles of the scripture. I mean, the Bible makes a difference in how he lives. This is a man who's been born again, obviously. His life has been changed. His life has been transformed. Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. So his goal in life now is to be pleasing to God. He's a man who is also devout. So in other words, he has a love for God that, that drives the things that he does. A man of prayer, a man of worship. The next example of a man who's above reproach is this. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. In other words, he's not a hypocrite. Paul says this in verse 7, says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Every Christian is supposed to bear a good testimony before the world. That's also true of those who would serve as pastors of a church. The Christian standards that characterize his life when around that characterize his life when around fellow believers on Sunday should be consistent with how he lives his life Monday through Saturday as well. So in other words, like we said, he's not a hypocrite. This also means he's willing to stand firm for what is moral and right when those around him are going the other direction. They may not like the stand that he takes, but they need to be able to see that he's being consistent and not falling prey to the whims of the culture around him. The next characteristic is this. He must show genuine love and concern for others. We see this in several, several things that Paul said. 1 Timothy 3, 2, he speaks of being hospitable. So this is the idea of being kind to newcomers, uh, seeking to make people feel at home. He's willing to use his home for ministry. 
This also means that he's open to sharing his life with other people. He's not so secretive that people can never really find out what kind of person he really is. And Titus, Paul adds to this that he loves what is good. This especially is talked about what is beneficially good to others. Um, He's one who goes out of his way to be kind, to be helpful, to be generous. He won't shrink, uh, or I'm sorry, he will not sink to acting in vengeful ways toward other people. And this trait really, along with others here, reminds me of the definition that Paul gave of love back in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but instead rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In fact, love never fails. I don't think there's any more practical verses in the whole Bible to describe how Christians are to show love toward other people. And that leads me, I think, to an important thing I want to take note here, a little bit of a transition. These are qualifications, and there's one more that we need to look at, but these are qualifications that need to be in a man's life if he's to be received as an elder, as a pastor, as an overseer in the church. But every one of these qualifications are things that should be the part of a life of every Christian. I mean, there's nothing here. I mean, if, if you're hearing this and thinking, well, I don't really have a desire to be a pastor, so these things don't really apply to me. Yes, they do. They apply to every Christian without exception. So it's really important. I mean, we're all, for example, just to go through what we just talked about, we're all called to have self-control. We're all called to be balanced and sensible. We're all called to focus more on being a peacemaker. <coughs> Sorry. Focus more on being a peacemaker than one who's always in the middle of an argument. <coughs> We're all called. I'm about to get me some water here. It's funny how that stuff comes out of nowhere. We're all called to grow and mature in our love for the Lord, to have a good reputation with those in the church and those outside the church, to show genuine love and concern for others. No Christian is exempt from those. So they apply to every, all of us. It's what every Christian is supposed to pursue in their life. But the final qualification is not one that's required of every Christian. 1 Timothy 3.3 says that he must be able to teach. <clears throat> Titus 1.9 gets even more specific about that. <clears throat> it says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. <clears throat> so we all need to be people who understand the Christian faith and hold to sound doctrine, but not everyone is called to teach. And also, not everyone who is gifted to teach should be an elder. But those who do serve as elders also need to be able to teach. 
So the last qualification is this. He must be able to teach the scripture such that it is understandable to others. Now I'm going to divide this up into four, into, uh, four statements, and they're basically taken from Titus 1.9, and that's this. <coughs> the elder holds firmly to the inspiration of the scriptures, the inspiration of the scriptures as God's holy word. Paul says he needs to hold fast the faithful word. Hold fast the faithful word. You cannot accurately teach the word of God if you don't believe it really is the word of God. Um, there are many Christians who fudge big time on this. As I've told you before, in the Baptist college I attended where I was a religion major, I was encouraged to question and doubt the inspiration of scriptures. Thankfully, God spared me from going down that road, even though many of my classmates did go down that road. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There is just so much confusion and deception about what is right and true. But God has given us his inspired, inerrant word. It's profitable to teach, profitable to reprove, to kind of pull us back from something that we're considering or going into, to correct us and say, here's the right way to think about this. Here's the right direction to go. And to give training in what is right. So if one doesn't hold to the inspiration of the scriptures as the word of God, then they are not really in a position to truly help people. One who, one who would serve as an elder must hold firmly to the inspiration of scriptures. Second, the pastor is one who understands the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. All through the pastoral letters, Paul emphasizes the need to hold to firm, sound doctrine. We need to know the basics of the Christian faith. Paul says, again, this is Titus 1.9, to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Well, what's the teaching? The teaching is no doubt a reference to the apostolic teaching. It's the teaching that Paul and the other apostles were making in their ministries throughout the um, the the world at that time. And it's the teaching that ultimately, it's in the process of it here, but ultimately was going to be inscripturated in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, which includes the letters of Paul to Timothy and to Titus. So the teaching really is what we have now as the New Testament, those inscripturated teachings. So the basic doctrines of the faith, I think, can be summed up in four, which really has to do with the gospel. First, who is God? Well, God is the creator. He's the one to whom we are all accountable because he created us. He's the one who is holy, righteous, and just, and that means he requires us to be righteous as well. Second, the next basic doctrine has to do with who man is. We're created by God in his image, but ever since Adam and Eve, we are sinners who fall short, who fall far short of God's glory. Well, the Bible describes us as being God's enemies. And because of our sin, we're under his righteous condemnation for all eternity. 
The third basic doctrine tells us where our hope is. Our hope is in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world as a man. He lived a righteous life. He gave his life as a ransom for sinners when he died on the cross. He accomplished salvation for all who would believe when he rose again from the dead. So Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and that's the good news. The fourth basic doctrine is this. God calls sinners like us to come to him for salvation, to come to him with our sin, to confess our sin, to admit our sin, to turn from our self-centered ways of living and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Those are the basic gospel truths. That's the core of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. The elder needs to be clear on this. Third, the elder is one who is able to exhort others in the truth and help them make good applications. Paul says that as a teacher, the elder is to be able to exhort others in the truth. So as believers, we regularly need to be exhorted in the truth of the scriptures. We all have a tendency to forget things. I run into this so often while well, I'll read something I think, oh yeah, I almost forgot that was in the Bible, but that's pretty important. I mean, as we're always having to be reminded of things, none of us remember everything all the time in every situation. So there's a place for being exhorted. We have a tendency to get lethargic. We have a tendency sometimes to lose heart because whatever's taking place in our life. So there's a need for regular exhortation from the scriptures. And God uses his word to encourage our hearts. He uses his word to correct us. He uses his word to, to train us. He uses his word to encourage us. He uses his word to give us strength, to give us insight. So the elder needs to be able to exhort believers in the doctrines of the faith. And finally, he must be willing and able to refute false teachers, to refute false teachers. As you know, there was a problem in Ephesus where Timothy was of false teachers. That's one of the main reasons Paul left him there and why he's being so specific on here's what needs to be a part of the local church because there were teachers who were causing big issues in the church. The same thing was happening in Crete. Paul left Timothy, left Titus, I'm sorry, in Crete for the same reason. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to give you a couple examples here. Right after in Titus that he gives those uh, list of qualifications, or in verse 10, it says four are because... There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deliverers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And he just kind of goes on and on. So there were issues in both churches. And so part of what's going on here is that we need to be willing, the elders need to be willing to refute those false teachings that are going on. Matter of fact, back in 1 Timothy, you may remember that Paul actually mentioned two men by name who had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So false teachings and false teachers can do a lot of harm, and there is a responsibility to address those things when it comes up. God loves his church. The church is the household of God. That's who we are. We're the church of the living God. We're the pillar and support of the truth. And one thing he's done, he's told us that he's given elders, he's given pastors to shepherd his people. There's no elders who do everything right all the time. I can testify to that. 
But I do thank the Lord that he uses imperfect vessels to his glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that you give us. Uh, this, these, both these passages have just have so many very specific details of, of character qualities and things that need to be true of our lives and uh, things that should not be true, just all kinds of things there. They do apply to those who are elders and pastors for sure, and that's why they were written especially. But as we said, they apply to all of us. I mean, there is none of us who can look at these things and think, I don't really want to work on that part of my life because that's not important to me. Yes, it is, and it should be. If we're Christians, then Jesus Christ is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. He's our Lord, and he's given us his word to actually teach us, to instruct us, to guide us, to give us the help that we need. Lord, I ask that you would help us, help us to continue, all of us, to continue to grow in our faith. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. You are my creator, and and you require certain things of me, but I haven't lived up to what you've called me to be. So I confess my sin to you, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to submit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.